I'm Christopher Calloway, and this is Creator Talks, the show where I interview writers and artists working on comics and in other mediums. And when I say artists, I also mean colorists, letterers. And my guest today began as a colorist and later switched over to becoming an artist, doing the line drawing in comics. Why did he switch? Well, we're going to talk to Julius Ota today. Julius is going to tell us why. And Julius is known for his work on Dynamite Comics' Sherlock Holmes, The Vanishing Man, and Betty Page in the upcoming Betty Page series, Betty Page Unbound. Betty Page is being written by a former guest on the show, David Avalone. We're going to find out from Julius what it's like working on this series, working with David and the colorist Ellie Wright. We're also going to learn what character would Julius like to work on? You may be surprised at his answer given his previous work. And on this episode, I have the debut of a new feature, Creator Corner, where I have a guest returning to talk about something that they're working on currently. And that guest is Rafael Loreiro, who works on The Mall for Scout Comics. He's joined by Don Hanfield and Joshua Mulkin, the writers of Unicorn, their Kickstarter. It's a story about dealing with death. We had a great conversation, so please stick around for that. This show is brought to you by The Comic Book Shop at 1855 on Marsh Road in Wilmington, Delaware at the Plaza 3 Shopping Center where comics are for everyone. Just be nice. So let's begin with Julius Ota, artist of Betty Page, being published through Dynamite Comics, here now on Creator Talks. Welcome to Creator Talks. Thank you, Chris. It's a pleasure to be here. How's the family? Oh, glad you asked. They're much fine now. A few days ago, the youngest woke up a little sick, and then the eldest also got sick. And uh, we had to put this conversation on a rain check. <laughs> but uh, I'm glad we are talking now. Well, I'm glad everybody's doing well. I have two boys. Uh, I got to think about this now. Mm -hmm. Seven and two. (laughs) And yeah, they get sick. I mean, like the littlest one got sick. He was fine when we took him to school. Then he had 103 fever, had to go and pick him up, brought him home. He slept for like four or five hours. And then he was great. So little kids, they just bounce back so fast. Yeah, it's almost what happened to my kids. The worst part is that they had to go to the doctor and they took a shot. (laughs) And this is Uh... not good. But they're just fine. Oh, yeah. They say that so much. Well, I have to tell you, I've had a guest on from the Sao Paulo area before. This must be a hotbed for new art talent. I had uh, Rafael Lorero, who does The Mall through Scout Comics on the show. I understand Sao Paulo is the graffiti capital of the world, where some famous street artists hail from. Are you familiar with that local art scene? And can you tell me anything about it? Yeah. If you had a chance to come here and walk around the places, you see graffiti everywhere. It's amazing. It's uh, it's part of the culture. I mean, uh, I don't know much of the top artists doing graffiti, but when we walk around the city, we can see buildings painted. It's marvelous. It's amazing how, how good they can make those paintings. Actually enhances. You're right. There is even, um, they call it the Beko do Batman. It's something... Batman's Alley or something like that. It's all full of graffiti and uh, Batman paintings. It's amazing. It's awesome. 
I've seen something similar in Philadelphia. Not so much the graffiti, but there is art on the side of buildings where they're painting figures, people, famous people, and it is incredible. It looks great. It's amazing. It really does enhance the scenery, taking those blank buildings with bricks and painting them up. Really nice. That's great. I've never been in the U.S., especially in Philadelphia, but uh, I see pictures, I see movies, and uh, I believe it's awesome as well. Now, you've always lived in Sao Paulo? I was born here in Sao Paulo. And when I was a kid, I moved to, to the countryside, to a town called Cascavel in another state. And I grew up in the countryside. When I was around 15, 16 years old, I came back to Sao Paulo to do the, the college. I'm still here since then. I don't believe I, <laughs> I, I'm going to move. I don't have plans for that. Okay. What was it like growing up there? I have a friend. He's a Chinese guy. His name is Fu Hui, And he always tell me how incredible it is you tell something that doesn't show on TV, you don't see on magazines. It's something unique to the place. And uh, here in Sao Paulo, we are used to do things like that every day, but you don't see it every day. And uh, I'm thinking about something like that. Growing up here, we have a lot of different cultures living together. I'm a Japanese descent, and I have a lot of friends from any other cultures. Uh, as I said, I have a Chinese friend, and I have an Italian friend, and a German friend, and friends from everywhere. And they bring their culture to here. So we have the Brazilian culture that everybody does together, like uh, Carnival. We are a week from Carnival, and everybody plays together. But uh, it's amazing how the difference of cultures can live together. This is amazing here. As a Japanese descent, I have always that uh, order and uh, discipline thing. And when I go to a friend's house, it's totally different. I have an Italian friend who speaks very loud, and, and this is very amazing to me. <laughs> <laughs> Many cultures at the same time. This is amazing. I don't know much about your artistic training. Uh, you went to college, you said. Can you tell me about your training? I grew up drawing. <laughs> I mean, I, I, it's the same old story, you know. I, I draw like since I was a little kid. I started drawing uh, way before I started talking. And uh, I was doing it my whole life. Then I decided that I wanted to do design college. In fact, I wanted to do art college, but my father was not very cool with that so i convinced him that design would be good for me and good for him so he said okay i can deal with that so i did a design college i had a lot of classes with many good teachers that when they knew i was comic book lover they used to help me giving me books and advice and many other things that we don't have in the college usually in the college that's why I became a comic book artist. I always thought that to be a comic book artist was something so out of reach because we had to pay a rent, we have bills to pay. And uh, comic book artists in Brazil, it's not a very common profession. So I was looking for a way to pay my bills with art. When I got to the college and I met all of these amazing guys, I learned that it could be possible to draw and to raise money. And that's why I, I started to improve myself, to learn 
drawing techniques to work in this comic book business. But I didn't start it as a penciler or a, or a inker. I started as a colorist mm-hmm. in, yeah, I started in 96, if I'm not mistaken. At that time, it was the first wave of Brazilian artists to United States. It was the first time that we saw a Brazilian guy drawing something for American industry. I believe it was Mike Deodato and all those amazing guys. And uh, I said, okay, I'll try, I'll give my shot. And uh, I started sending my portfolio to the agent, but uh, it was not good enough at the time. I was 16 or 17 years old. I was very young and my art was not good enough. So they said, okay, let's try something different. How about you coloring something? I was already coloring things in college. I did it for fun, but uh, I showed some of these agents my, my coloring work and they liked it and said, okay, let's do some tests. And that's what I did. I did some tests, they liked it, and they started working just like that, very fast. That's it. I started coloring for small publishers. I believe I did the coloring work for about a year or two. I graduated and it it got over. And uh, I started working in an advertising company. And this was a game change for me because I was so focused on working with comics that I didn't see that illustration is a big market, you can do much more things than only comics. And I started to be an illustrator for advertising agencies. It was a game change for me because I could see that you need to learn techniques to do your work. When you do comic books, it's almost the same thing. You, you have, how to say, a list to do. You have a bunch of techniques that you have to use. It repeats every time. But when we work to an uh, advertising company, it gets a little different. Every job, it's a different job. First job, you can just do a storyboard. Next one, it's something with watercolor. Next one, it's with uh, gouache and uh, and so forth. It's completely different. You never have the same job twice. And it helped me to see that much more than just uh, black and white drawings. You know, It was amazing for me. I drew for advertising companies for about a decade, I think. <laughs> it was... Uh, uh, a career. So are you uh, solely focused on comics now or are you still doing illustration and advertising work? Right now I'm focused only for comic books. I worked for advertising for decades, as I said, but I always loved the comic books. I thought, okay, it's time to change. Uh, I did 30 something years old and uh, I'm 40 now, <laughs> just for curiosity. When I did 30 something, I said, okay, it's time to see what I want for my life. Uh, my career was not doing so well at advertising because we, we had a financial crisis here in Brazil a few years ago and uh, my studio was not getting as much job as it did the last couple of years. And uh, I thought, okay, it's a good time to think about what I want for my life. And I thought, okay, I'm, I'm not very uh, comfortable drawing for advertising. I'm never the author of the illustration. We always have a big team behind, but I am much more like a tool than an artist. I don't have uh, much voice to inside those illustrations. It's very good, but not that much. 
And I thought, okay, it's the time to, to switch the, my career. So I came back to comic books. It was not an easy thing to do. But first time, I thought, okay, I want to be a colorist. And I focused on that. When I started coloring, I realized that coloring was not really what I really wanted. When I started doing my portfolio, that's the good part when we are starting something. The machine is not working yet. I'm, I'm not finding the right word for that. But when you start your engine, you can't stop it anymore. You, you must go with your car and the engines keep running and you can't change anything. But when you start something, it's the right moment to think about what I want, what is the best thing to do to set up things before you start the engine. And when I was doing that, when I was doing my portfolio, I found that drawing is what I really loved. So I started doing drawing tests. And it was not that good. <laughs> it, was, uh, <laughs> it was really bad because it's two completely different things. I was used to coloring. When you do coloring, we have a set of things that we have to focus on. We had lightning and uh, the characters. How do we put a character on a, on a focus? It's completely different from drawing. Drawing, you have a few words in a paper and you have to put that on, uh, on drawings, we have to put that on life, and so it's completely different. And I freaked out at the first time. <laughs> it was completely different for me. But I knew at that moment that drawing is what I really wanted to do. So I started doing tests, a page a day. I did a lot of pages. I know, I don't know, maybe 80, maybe 100 pages. I don't know. But uh, I sent all of these pages to my agent. I always had that feedback, like. Uh, it's not good enough. You must fix this. You must fix that. You must try something new. And suddenly I met this guy. His name is Alzir. He's from a studio here from Brazil. I'm really thankful for him because he was the first guy who said, I like your work. You you have something in your work. Would you like to work with me? <laughs> and he's an agent. That was amazing. So he introduced me to Kurt Gibbow. Kurt is my American agent. And he's Awesome. After three months doing tests, I got my first job for Dynamite. It was amazing. It was very fast working with them. Well, I can see how with coloring for you, it felt more like production work, at least for you, where you wanted to do more storytelling and by drawing, you could be more creative. That's what you really wanted. Some people love the coloring. That is their form of expression. For you, there was something missing. Drawing allowed you to do storytelling, and now we've reached Dynamite, and that's when I first noticed your work. It was on Sherlock Holmes' The Vanishing Man, and that was written by Leah Moore and John Repion. And I was like, oh, this looks pretty good. I like the art on this. <laughs> you capture a really good likeness of the characters because besides the covers, I think it was John Cassidy that did it, and yeah. the interior by you, there is that image of the Sherlock Holmes that's my favorite from television, Jeremy Brett. Really? Yeah, I mean, I could see the, the attitude and the mannerisms and the expressions of that actor's portrayal of Holmes, who, for me, and at least my generation, that's Holmes on television. That's Holmes in the films. You know, some people, it's Basil Rathbone, but that goes way back. That's the one I like, and that's what I was seeing. So that is a great assignment to land your first one through Dynamite. That's great. I'm flattered. <laughs> And how did you land that gig? Was it your agent that helped you get connected to Dynamite? The agent, he doesn't get the job for us, for the artists. He's just the man who introduces us to the publishers, to the editors. 
And Kurt was a very nice guy with me. My art was not that good enough. And he just said, okay, keep doing. Don't don't worry about if it's good, if it's not good, how long you're taking to do your job. And I did it. Suddenly he called me and said, okay, Dynamite wants to give you a um, feeling. And let's try. Let's see how you do with uh, a real-world job. First assignment, it was uh, White Sands. And this was the first one Dynamite wanted to test me to see how I deal with a real world job. They sent me the last five or less ten pages, I don't quite remember, uh, the number of pages of this White Sands book. But the, the script said, talk about a lot of places that wasn't ready yet. The other artist was still drawing it. So I got confused. I said, oh my God, how am I going to do something that doesn't exist yet? So uh, I tried to use many close-ups and many tricks to, <laughs> to do that. And then, then I might say, okay, this is, looks pretty good. Let's do more five pages and more three pages. And then I did the whole book in backwards. I started for the last page. It was crazy. But uh, I believe they like it because uh, a few days later, they said, okay, I think we want to hire you to draw Sherlock Holmes. This is a very short email I got from Kurt. And he just said that, well, then I might want to hire you. And they said, okay, I'm on it. I don't choose the book. This is just fine for me. A few days later, they sent me the script. I could talk to Leah and John. And they were so kind to me. They said, okay, this is our first book. Don't worry, do your thing. And uh, they were so amazing to me. And then I started doing it. It was the last month of 1917. I started on December and the holidays was right there. When I had the, the layout approval, I had only uh, 15 days, 17 days, I don't remember, to finish all the 22 pages. It was very rushed job, this first book. But the second one was very nice to do. The other books, I had a very nice deadline. John and Leo was just amazing with me. Let me back to the first book. Uh, I think this is something very interesting. Uh, they sent a very accurate description about how they want it. Uh, Sherlock Holmes and uh, Watson. They said this is not a TV show. This is based on the original uh, Arthur Conan Doyle character. That guy, almost bald, uh, very tall, very skinny, and Watson is uh, military. Think about them around 30 years old because it's one of the first assignments of them. The story happened in 1918-something, I don't remember. But they said, okay, it's the beginning of their career. So think about them very young. I thought, it's a comic book. I think if we use someone so skinny, so European-like, I don't think it will be pleasant to read. So I proposed a different Sherlock Holmes, more like American Sherlock Holmes, you know, like a handsome actor. And they said, okay, it looks okay, <laughs> let's try it. And for every script, they send lots of descriptions and links for searches. And anyways, they send a lot of things, a lot of reference for me. It was not just like, this is the script and draw. They were very kind to me. They sent a lot of reference. They explained exactly what happened at that time. Uh, London is very dirty. You have much poverty on the streets. You have fog. They really care about these details. And I did my own research. And uh, I hope I could help something. <laughs>
I mean, it was amazing to work with them. Despite it not being based on a TV series, the TV series that I referenced, the one with Jeremy Brett that was Granada Television, that actor wanted to make the stories, well, he was adapting the stories, he was portraying Holmes as he was in the book. He was trying to live that character which was very difficult for him because he really got into the character like on and off the screen. Like he would sit there and read the script while other people were taking a break. He was that into it. But he wanted to capture that Sherlock Holmes from the original stories, which is why yours and the story that John Aaliyah came up with, this vanishing man, really captured that look. It does tap into the original source of the Sherlock Holmes stories. And that's where you started. And then you worked on Betty Page, and you're still working on Betty Page. You're Dynamite's secret weapon, and you shouldn't be a secret any longer (laughs) (laughs) because they get some very impressive writers of Dynamite. I buy a lot of their books. I read a lot of their stuff because I like it. I like a lot of the licensed properties. Yeah, I must agree with that. Oh, I I, I really get into that stuff. I love it because it's me. It's something classic about it. It's something that has a history already built in. Even though they do fresh takes on things, like they give a lot of latitude to the writers to adapt the character and do what they want as long as it falls within the licensing agreement. And, that, you know, it's okay with the owners of the property. Every once in a while, they'll have an artist that just blows me away. So when I see something solicited, I don't recognize the name. I don't care. I want to know what this is about. And that's what happened in your case. I hadn't heard of you before other than, you know, Sherlock Holmes. And I hadn't made a connection yet. But then I was like, man, this looks really good. I mean, she looks, I'm talking about Betty Page. She looks smart. She looks sassy, cute. I mean, it's really well, well done. And it's that perfect marriage between the writer and the artist, because I've spoken to David Avalone, who writes the series, and it's going to be writing the next yeah, series. Yeah, I listened to his podcast. Oh, he's great. Do you have any communication with him? Have you talked to him? You exchange emails when you're working on the Betty Page scripts? How do you go about that? We exchange emails, but not that much. I mean, it's my mistake. I should have changed emails with him first. But yes, we do have some communication. We do exchange emails. It all started uh, right on the first book, but uh, I don't uh, write directly to him. I write to Kurt, and Kurt does this midfield between me and David. But recently, we are talking more to each other, and this is amazing. The chemistry is there, so uh, I'm very thankful for David for that. Now, was this an assignment that Dynamite gave to you, or did David say, hey, I want Julius to do this? How did you connect with him? I was doing Sherlock Holmes number four, I believe. I'm very much focused in what I'm doing, so I don't listen much. Uh, There's a word (laughs) happening around me, and I'm so focused, but... uh, I got this email from Kurt, and he said, Julius, uh, we have another assignment for you. Uh, we have the Halloween special for Betty Page. Would you like to do? I just said, okay, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm 100% in. Let's do it. And uh, when I finished Sherlock Holmes 4, then I had time to, to think about, okay, what, what am I supposed to do? So I didn't knew David. I had no information about it, but I started to look for what is uh, this Betty Page comic book. So I started reading the previous uh, series, and I got very amazed by this character because I'm not much a superhero guy, you know. When I start drawing, when I do my tests, I always had that script, you know, Wolverine's jumping and uh, Psylocke's firing blasts and right. all stuff like that. How am I supposed to do that? I, I don't know how to do that. And, <laughs> and uh, but when I get those scripts with dialogues and people with emotional situations, I said, okay, I'm very cool with that. I can do that. And uh, 
when I read about Betty Page, when I read her series, I thought, okay, I, I think I'm going to fall in love with this character because uh, she's bold, she's amazing. When you think Betty Page, she's a pinup girl, she's the goddess pinup, and we think uh, she would be. Uh, half naked the whole book but <laughs> it's not what happened mm -hmm. she's completely the opposite of that she's very bold she's smart she's a super girl i said okay I, i think i'm going to fall in love with this and when i got the first script for halloween special it was exactly that and i love uh, lovecraft also and uh, i said okay uh, i have uh, uh, the book of my dreams i just have to do it right So it was amazing. When I did the first three pages, and I said, I believe I sent the three pages at once for them. And uh, a few minutes later, Kurt sent me back and said, okay, I believe David and Kevin liked your work. And uh, they asked if you want to do the next Betty Page series. I said, oh my God, <laughs> the Betty Page Halloween special is uh, one shot. And they now they want me to do the next Betty Page series. And I said, I mean, that's what impressed me. I saw the announcement about you doing the Betty Page Unbound. And I'm like, wow, they're still in the first series. I, I wonder what happened. I said, they must have gone crazy about your work. Yeah, I'm so glad for that. I'm so glad they are enjoying my work, my deadlines. I hope they're doing well for them because <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy. Um, for you to have an idea what is happening now. When this year started, I got from David this, I think it was in December, David said something, I have a crazy idea. And I think Dynamite is buying this idea. He said the, the plot of Betty Page Unbound. And in January, Dynamite approved it and said, okay, we are going to do another series and we need a cover for that. We need a lot of stuff for that. So I'm still doing Betty Page in London. It goes to number five. And then we start Betty Page Unbound. And uh, I'm already working on Betty Page Unbound. Today I did the cover for the number four, already layouting the next book. I believe, it. oh my God, I'm just uh, out of this world. I don't remember the numbers anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I'm working uh, almost every day, but I like it. It's a dream work. But I have to learn a lot about this girl because there is a lot of ways to deal with the character. And uh, she's a pretty face. And this is the first thing everybody sees on Betty Page. She's a, a pretty face, a pretty girl. And she's that kind of girl that every guy can fall in love. But she's also a spy. And she's also very bold. And she can face interdimensional monsters. And, and this character has lots of layers. And uh, how can I work on these layers? This is something that I really enjoy doing, Betty Page. And when we work in a, in a comic book, uh, we have short space to work with this character. I'm trying really hard to capture her emotions, her expressions. And I believe the, the body talks a lot. This is what I'm trying to do, you know, to get her body language to the comic book. Thing is... We don't have much information about her. We have the Google stuff, you know, uh, the Wikipedia thing, how, uh, who is she, what she did. But we don't have those footage that shows Betty Page being just Betty Page. So this part is the hardest part for me, to get this character, her feelings, her fears, this kind of thing. On uh, Betty Page Halloween special, when she faces Yogg Sothoth, There's a moment she says, okay, I'm done. This guy is going to eat me and I'm done. Uh, at that moment, we can see her 
Betty Page right there, and they said, okay, this is going to be the most uh, hard thing to do with this character. I'm not sure if I could capture her enough, but that moment gave me the directions for the rest of the book. Uh, I have a, how to say, a north for her personality. How does he react to every situation, you know? I think I'm getting to her. She's very, a uh, very complex character. But it's amazing for me. I, I like this kind of thing. And now we are working with Elizabeth II. David sent this amazing reference, which is the crown. Claire Foy is amazing. I always pay attention on her posture. She's always trying to be uh, with a good posture, uh, her way to speak. She always think a lot before I speak. And sometimes she doesn't even speak. She just looks at someone. And uh, I'm trying to, to bring it to the comic book as well. And David can create a lot of good characters. It's not just a random guy throwing around the book. Mm -hmm. Every character has a meaning to be there. They have a background, and this is awesome. Uh, we have that guy, McKnight. <laughs> His name is Larry, you know, Lawrence McKnight. It's an amazing character because I like to work with... Uh, I did a research, the designs of the era... They like to smoke, they have a way to dress, they have a way to talk. So much reference to work with. I'm really amazed with this character, with this book. I'm so glad that I have this opportunity to work with such an amazing team, with Dynamite and David as a writer. It's amazing. I'm so grateful. Well, the reference work is really paying off because the clothing, the cars, the style, the language, it's all there. And the thing that struck me about this book is like the characters, what you were talking about, the characters' expressions. They're very expressive. And there is a continuity to the art. Now, someone actually tweeted me about that. What is art continuity within a book? Don't the artist and writer know what the characters look like? But there's a continuity. I mean, it looks like Betty Page throughout the book. Like, there's a point where that doesn't quite look right. You recognize all the characters. They're all very distinct in their expressions and their look. And the expressions have so much emotion to them, surprise, shock. It's really, really one of the best parts about the book. And the art looks very organic. What do you use to create your art? Are you using traditional pen and ink? Or are you using digital, a little combination of both? How do you create the art for the book? I'm very flattered. Well, I work digitally. The thing you said, Betty must look like Betty at every panel. This is my weak spot. You know? <laughs> I'm not very good drawing people. When I was looking for uh, a gig, I just thought, I hope it's not a gig to make someone look someone that really exists. And I got Betty Page. <laughs> I said, okay, uh, I won't run away. Uh, let's do it. I'm still learning how to get her expressions, this kind of thing. Uh, as I said, we don't have much pictures and I don't like to work over a picture. There is this technique, you can take a picture or some internet reference and work on this reference. I don't like to do that because it's like a stamp. You know, like you take a stamp and put it on every frame and mm -hmm. you, you lose the expression of this character. I like to take the lines, the main lines of the face, the, the body, and uh, sometimes I make some mistakes, but I believe that I like to bring this expression more than the the look. I like to bring the hair expression much more than anything else. And I work digitally. I work. Uh, it's more like a consequence than a choice because I don't have uh, space to draw. 
I have a very small table and I work on a Cintiq, on a tablet. And that's all the gear I have. <laughs> I, I would like to try more traditional uh, drawing stuff, paper, ink and the traditional uh, material. But uh, I don't have how to right now. This is something fun to talk about. I used to have a big studio, you know, I have a, a lot of space to work. And I had a table for drawing, I had a table for a scan, and a table for cleanup and all those stuff. But uh, I recently started working with my wife. She does wedding uh, stationery. She started to, to use my space, you know, but uh, she needed. Now I have only one table to work. But uh, that's okay. That's fine. So that's it. That's why I'm working only with the Cintiq, only digitally. I got used to it. I don't have to switch much things. You know, when I'm working with uh, traditional art, uh, there's a lot of paper, a lot of stuff. There is things that we have to deal with. And I don't have much space to do that. In a computer, we have everything right there. I am very traditional yet. So uh, when I use the computer... I still use only one brush, and uh, I don't use much things. You know, computer is just for a tool. I use just the pen and the ruler, and that's all. Now, your choice of colorist, or your colorist, I should say, is Ellie Wright. Now, Ellie has worked on both Sherlock Holmes' The Vanishing Man and Betty Page. And now, will she be working on Betty Page Unbound as well as your colorist? I can't answer that question. So do you have a choice in the colorist? Or is this something that Dynamite usually works out who your colorist is going to be? Yes, that's why I can't answer that question. Okay, <laughs> I, I don't know. Fair enough. <laughs> I don't know. Because Dynamite chose the, the colorist. They've chosen well because she did you know, Sherlock Holmes. She did Betty Page and looks very consistent, looks great. You know, it's not too bright, very well muted colors that work well with the outfits of the characters. You know, they're not flashy. It's from back in either Sherlock Holmes 1880s or it's, you know, Betty Page 1950s. So it looks great. Now, you worked in coloring. You started as a colorist. Grim Fairy Tales for Xenoscope, Serenity Dark Horse Comics. That's how you started. Having some knowledge of that, what can you say about Ellie's coloring of your black and white work? What do you like about it? What is essential to it? To make your work look its best. Yeah, I can see that you did the research on me. <laughs> That's great. Well, I like Ellie colors. I think uh, we have many ways to color, you know, in a very technical analysis. I think it works very well. Otherwise, then I might wouldn't hire her. <laughs> right. <laughs> I think she, she's doing a pretty good job. And I'm glad that we are working with her. I don't talk with Dynamite about it. This is all the editor's choice. But... I'm very happy with all of them choices. I think Ellie is doing a really good job. But uh, I don't talk to her. This is something I, I miss sometimes. This is for something on me. I like to talk with people, you know. When I got Sherlock Holmes, I sent an email to Lee and John and introduced myself. And I said, okay, well, we are going to work together. If you have something to tell me, let's talk about it. I like this conversation. And when I was a colorist, I would like to talk with the artist as well. But Ellie has a different process. But I know that David talks to her. So this is very good for everyone. He can give her all those details that she needs to do her job. Well, they've definitely built a very good team around the book. You know, having the same writer, artist, colorist, it looks great. And it's very consistent. What do you think about your next assignment? If you had... 
control over that. Let's say you wanted to do a licensed character, somebody that you're itching to get to. Who would that be? I knew you were going to do something. Yeah, uh, you were going to ask something like that. <laughs> <laughs> I have a uh, hundred answers for that question. For that straight answer, I believe it's Constantine. Hmm. I like this character quite a lot because he's not that superhero guy. He's a very dark character. And I remember Alan Moore talking about him as a David Bowie character. He looks like David Bowie and all that stuff. And I think, wow, this is going to be something very interesting to draw. There is a lot of monsters. I can't say monsters. It's this dark side of the magic, all that black magic and all that stuff. I think it's very, very nice to work. Because uh, Betty Page, I have a very dark lines. You know, I like to work with shadows. And Betty Page, she's very bright, exactly the opposite of that. But uh, we have uh, a moment on the issue two that everything happens at night, and I got extremely delighted with that. It was amazing to work with dark shades and uh, stuff like that. And I believe that John Constantine has this dark feeling. It's not because I only want to do that, but I think it would be very nice to do once in a while. The other character I would really like to do is Preacher. Oh, I really okay. like that character from uh, from Garth Ennis. I think Preacher changed everything for me. I was used to read Superman, Batman, and all these characters. Then I learned about Vertigo comics. And I started reading Books of Magic, Constantine, and uh, all those guys, uh, Swamp Monster. And, uh... Anyways, then I found this guy, what Garth Ennis did with Preacher. And... And I said, okay, there's something different on it. Now I know what I really want to do, you know. It was a game change for me. Preacher was amazing. I have the books I, and this, sometimes I read it. I really love the TV series. It's amazing as well. Me and the missus both like to watch Preacher. The first season we thought was a little slow, but it really picked up towards the end. And then the second season, the opening with the car on the road and the explosions, that blew us away. It is such a quirky bizarre show but we love it and i'll tell you what man i'm going to lobby dc because i want to see you work on these characters you said constantine bowie like that's my favorite musical artist is david bowie so now i want to see that now you have me pining for that (laughs) and preacher so i'm going to put a word in i you know not that i have any pull (laughs) i'm just going to lobby (laughs) i hope i can't do him anytime soon (laughs) well now i've reached the point of the show i call kicking back with the creator work i ask you questions just to learn more about you as a person if it involves art, great. If it doesn't, that doesn't matter. So, first question: What do you like to do for rest and relaxation? Oh my God, I don't have legs. <laughs> I don't have it anymore. When I have my two kids, it all got over. I, I don't rest anymore. Me and my wife, of course, we work and we take care of them, and we, <laughs> we do dinner and we take care of them, and uh, I don't rest anymore. But when I have a, a few hours to rest. I like to watch Netflix or Amazon Prime to watch Preacher, and that's all. Before that, I used to do... I don't remember anymore. <laughs> I used to go to the movies to, to go out like uh, every ordinary person, but uh, after the kids, after we got these two little angels, we don't have much rest anymore. Yeah, that's exactly how we live. You know, it's Netflix and Amazon, and we don't get out that much to the movies because we've got two little guys, so... But it's fine. You know, it's not that I don't want... I want to to go out, but I can't. (laughs) (laughs) We make time. Every once in a while we make time, so we have just, you know, our time to talk without the kids. (laughs) But I understand. The good thing is that 
both are growing up. So they start to go to the friends' houses. You know, I have a free time sometimes, every once in a while. And I think uh, sooner I will be living my life again. <laughs> <laughs> well, now think back to a birthday, any birthday in your life that stands out in your memory. Might have been a great one, might not have been so great, but you haven't forgotten that one. That one you remember. That is a tricky question. I have a lot of good birthdays you now. The best birthday I ever had. Can I choose more than one? Oh, sure. <laughs> Absolutely. You're my guest. Absolutely. Awesome. The last birthday was very awesome. I did four years old, and uh, I got from my wife and kids uh, a letter with uh, a lot of things. They drew a lot of things, and they put their hands, you know, and we have a dinner. It was just us, but uh, it was amazing. And we did it a few times. That's why I want to choose more than one. It was with them, but I love it. I love that. Ah, uh, the little things. That's what really matters. Now, thinking back to when you were 12, 13, 14, somewhere in there, what posters or pictures did you have on your bedroom wall? Oh, my God. You made me remember a lot of nice things. I had Batman. Do you remember that first Batman with Michael Keaton? I had a lot of posters of him. Uh, I was a kid, but uh, it was amazing for me. And I had... That Batmobile, uh, I had mainly Batman, Michael Keaton as a Batman. I had uh, rock bands. They were Brazilian rock bands like Legion Urbana. I believe only a few guys will know that band. But uh, it made me remember Batman. And this, in the same year, if I remember, uh, Indiana Jones' Last Crusade was in the movies also. And I had a lot of stuff with Indiana Jones. And uh, my room was full of posters with Indiana Jones. Uh, Batman, and uh, Back to the Future, of course. I was a big fan of Back to the Future. And and my drawings. <laughs> it's, of course. It's not because, <laughs> it's not because uh, I, I, I love them, but uh, I like to draw something and put it on the, on the wall, just to have something right there. Sure. Yeah, a lot of artists did that when they were little. They put their stuff up, not out of some kind of egotistical thing like my art, but they just wanted to decorate <laughs> the room and look at it. I used to draw Transformers at that time. Oh, okay. Uh, I loved Batman, Johnny Jones, and all the movies, but I didn't draw. I think I'm not good enough to draw Batman, so I, I'm not drawing him. Let's draw Transformers. Let's draw <laughs> any other thing. And I am a big anime fan also, so I used to draw Space Cruiser Yamato. Do you know this anime? Mm -mm, I don't. It's a very big ship flying uh, in the space. Uh, I mean, it's a very old stuff, but uh, I really love this one. That's it. That's all I had in my room. Well, this is a hypothetical question. If you were stuck on a desert island, you could have one book or a set of books. It can be a book book. It can be a graphic novel. It can be a comic book. What's the one book? that you want to have for pleasure. This isn't about survival. This is just something that would give you some comfort, something you would like to read. Uh, I would like to finish The Foundation from Isaac Asimov. I have the three books. I could read only one, and I would like to finish the other two books. This is definitely what I would read for pleasure, just because I, I love sci-fi. I love uh, Isaac Asimov. I also love all those, I used to read Dark Over series from Marion Zimmer Bradley. I think it's not something, a blockbuster, but there is this character named Lee Walton, and uh, he had some mind powers or something like that, and I really loved that series. I believe that Marion Zimmer Bradley was the first author that brought me inside this sci-fi universe. Then I 
found Isaac Asimov and all those classic writers. Foundation is my choice. Another hypothetical. Let's say Dynamite says, we're going to make an action figure of you. What would be your accessory? Oh, boy. <laughs> I'm not a much a gun guy. I'm thinking about a really action figure, so this is all hypothetical, right? Yes. <laughs> so I'm thinking I'm not that kind of G.I. Joe guy. Mm-hmm. I think I'm more like a anime guy, the RPG guy. I really love the Final Fantasy series. Something steampunk with a very crappy gun with my in my hand or something like that. You know, that kind of gun that is full of tape and uh, doesn't work properly. <laughs> and uh, it's all rusty. This kind of thing. And Googles. I use I use glasses, so mm-hmm. I would like to have those uh, steampunk Googles, you know, that like uh, aviator Googles. Very good. Very creative. I like that. Now, back to reality. When you do get a chance <laughs> to relax, what is your beverage of choice? I can't drink anymore, you know. Since I got married, I don't drink. This is a funny story. I used to drink with my friends and stuff like that. I, I always loved beer, and sometimes I used to drink wine. Then I got married. My wife doesn't drink, so I stopped drinking very slowly. It's just uh, I, I don't feel comfortable drinking, and she doesn't. Then my kids was born, and I definitely stopped drinking. A few months ago, I don't remember, I said, okay, let's go back to drinking. And I bought uh, a few beers, and I couldn't drink anymore. I, I feel sick drinking. Ah, lost the taste. Yeah, something changing in my body, and I can't drink anymore. But if I would choose something to drink... It would be coffee. Okay. All right. <laughs> I think it would be coffee. I drink coffee every day. I'm a coffee addicted. Me too. I drink coffee every day. Usually a half calf, and I try not to overdo it because I'll be like buzzing around the house if I drink too much coffee. I <laughs> get really jittery, but I do like a nice cup of coffee in the morning to wake me up. Yeah, I, I think that uh, if coffee is really healthy for us, I think I'm going to die with 170 years old. I drink coffee every day. <laughs> I drink coffee every day, all the time. The thing that I most drink in my life. Before you became an artist, what was the oddest job you ever had? Something you did to pay the bills, you know, something that was a little different. You did the hardest question because the only thing I know how to do in my life is to draw. <laughs> and I only worked with art, illustration, and drawing. I told you I was a colorist, mm-hmm. then I was an illustrator for advertising, and I was a teacher, but I teach art. And now I'm a comic book artist. Maybe when I worked with my wife in our wedding stationery design studio, it's not really odd because it's just a little different. You know, I was doing the design of the invitation. I don't believe this is really odd, but it's the oddest thing I can think about. Well, you're a lucky man that you've always been working in one way or another in art. This last one, I probably know the answer, but you mentioned several different films. And I want to know from you, what is, in your opinion, the best action adventure film ever made? A straight answer is The Matrix. This is my favorite action move ever, but I always like to think uh, twice and see if I remember something else. But uh, Matrix, I think it's the best action movie that I have ever watched because the story is very solid. I think it was the first time I see a plot twist so intense as when Neo wakes up in the real world. I never expected anything like that. I don't know if there is another movie before The Matrix, but uh, the first movie I saw with so big plot twists was The Matrix. It was not the only plot twist. We have many others, 
and uh, there's kung fu, of course, and this is always nice, <laughs> and there's guns, and the story is very solid. I still believe that The Matrix, the first movie, could be the masterpiece if it was only this movie. I mean, I'm not saying that the other two was bad. I, I know that the creators had thought about the trilogy. I think it works perfectly as one movie. Otherwise, they would have to choose the other three to make sense as a, as a whole movie. But the first Matrix is amazing. It's a game changer. I have it on my shelf. I've watched it. A friend bought it for me and said, you got to see this. And this was, oh, a few years after it came out. I was like, oh, I've heard of that. And the kung fu and the fighting and the bullets and the bending. And I was like, wow, this is great because I like action movies. I like superhero movies. And to me, that was almost like a superhero movie without being one. It is one of my favorites. It was the first movie I saw that they take the character and don't put him uh, in a suit like uh, like the Superman or, or a superhero. The design is amazing. They pick that black jacket and black glasses and all that stuff. And it was amazing. I really loved it. Well, I appreciate the time you spent today with me on Creator Talks, and I'm looking forward to reading the rest of Betty Page, and then, following that, Betty Page Unbound. And I'll be waiting for that Constantine and Preacher series to come out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> Julius, thank you so much for being on Creator Talks. Pleasure was all mine, Chris. We can talk anytime. It was an amazing time talking to you. Thank you so much. Well, that was fun, and I learned a lot about Julius. I had no idea he'd be interested in something like Constantine and Preacher, but that would be really cool to see. So come on, DC, sign him up. Now, this show is the first where I'm going to feature Creator's Corner. This is a shorter interview with creators that have been on my show before, and in fact, on this first one, Raphael Lorero is returning. He is working on a graphic novel with two writers, Dan Hanfield and Joshua Malkin. It's titled Unicorn. That's unicorn spelled with a K. We find out why it's spelled with a K. It actually deals with a very serious subject matter. And we're going to talk about what that is and how you can get a copy of this book now running as a Kickstarter that will end on April 25th. So now join me on Creator Quarter with returning guest Raphael Lorero and new guests Don Hanfield and Joshua Malkin. Joining me this segment are writers Don Hanfield, Joshua Malkin, and returning to Creator Talks, artist Raphael Lorero. Don Hanfield is co-creator and writer of History Channel's drama series Nightfall, a producer of The Founder, that was the story of Ray Kroc of McDonald's, starring Michael Keaton, and Kill the Messenger, starring Jeremy Renner. Don has also co-created the comic series The Rift and The Mall. Joshua Malkin is a professor of screenwriting at the University of California, Riverside. He has written projects for Sony, Warner Brothers, and Cross Creek Entertainment. Among the features he has written are an adaptation of Beastmaster, Buck Rogers in the 25th Century, and a documentary about underground comics. Now, Raphael Luro is located near Sao Paulo and is the artist on the mall, which is Scout Comics' best-selling series. Don, Joshua, and Raphael have joined forces to create Unicorn, a story of faith and how those we lose are still with us in spirit. Gentlemen, welcome. Hey, man. Thanks so hey, much for having hey, us. Hi. Hey. Great to be back. Don and Joshua, let me start with you. Both of you suffered a loss, which led to the creation of Unicorn. Please share your experience and why you decided to make Unicorn. I think it was about a year and a half, two years ago, my wife lost her stepfather who kind of raised her, and then I just lost my stepfather in September. And these are basically the male figures that were in the house for us growing up, for all intents and purposes, our fathers. You know, it's something where you sort of see the ripples. I mean, A, we're getting to an age where it's becoming more and more common, uh, unfortunately, of friends as well, and it's the conversations you have to have with your children. And 
we wanted to do it. There's stuff out there that's a little bit dark. It's almost a little bit heavy dealing with it. We wanted to find something that was maybe a little brighter, a little more hopeful. So it kind of led to the birth of this project. It's something that everyone has to deal with at some point in their lives. And especially trying to explain it to children for the first time, especially, it's difficult. For each one of you, when did you first begin to notice the passing of a generation within your circle of friends and family? You know, you lose grandma, you lose grandpa, then you start noticing things begin to change as a shift. You know, the next generation is coming up. When did you first start to realize that? Josh, you want to go first? Echoing what Don said, I think it was really the arrival of my twins, our twins, I should say, that made me so conscious of it as something that a family needed to move through as opposed to very selfishly I <laughs> needed to move through. We have had some fairly protracted family losses since the kids were born. And I think seeing life and unfortunately death through their eyes has been remarkably transformative. I mean, I guess I probably started noticing it once, you know, when you start losing grandparents and you see the effect it has on your own parents, you know, you start to see how they're kind of confronting their own mortality. You can see it in their eyes and the sort of sadness that's there and how do you cope with it? And then you're not a child anymore. You're a parent as well. So it just brings up a lot of stuff that you want to address. You know, they say we write about what we don't understand. And I kind of feel that way. I think we, we write about things we want to sort of understand better and try to distill what we learn and give it to other people. So that's kind of our goal here. How about you, Raphael? People might not know that, but I'm a bit younger than you guys. So right now, I'm, I think that's like Chris said, when you start losing your grandparents. Last year, I lost my grandma right about the same time when I was visiting James in Florida. I wasn't there to like see and support my father when he lost his mother. It's kind of a weird thing. Because to a certain extent, we were used to believe our parents are going to live forever. And since I live in a completely different city and I go home to see them once every two months, maybe, you start to notice a little things like my father can't like lift his arm to a certain extent anymore. And you start seeing wrinkles that weren't there before. It's kind of weird. I'm not sure how to describe that. And it goes back to what the guy said. It transforms something inside of you when you would notice that maybe they're not going to be there forever. Start appreciating them more. I found this old hard drive I had from my first computer and I hooked it up and I saw all of those very, very, very old pictures including mm. some pictures of my parents when they were kids. And it was like, dude, they were kids. We're not supposed to think about our parents when they're kids, right? Right. It has been a, a crazy journey for me to this point, thinking about that kind of stuff. It is interesting because you don't see your parents as people too. They have a role. You know what I mean? Like it's the parents, yeah. the, the father-mother figure. And then when you see them like you were as a teen and different personality almost in a different situation, you're like, oh, wow, look at that. I never saw them in that light before. Yeah. I mean, they had a life before you. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> and something I've noticed too, and I think we've all experienced this, that we go through life doing our job taking care of our families. And it's almost like sometimes in a day is just going from one thing to the next thing to the next thing to the next thing. And then someone comes up to you and says, so-and-so died. I just found out. And then all of a sudden, yeah. it's like, wow. It's like a splash yeah. of cold water in your face. And all of a sudden, all the other BS in life just drop away. And you're just suddenly totally focused on that moment. You just like a wake up, isn't it? Exactly. That's such a good yeah. point. Yeah. yeah, that's absolutely true. Every time that happens, even if you know someone is 
terminally ill, very sick, could pass away, when it finally happens and it's a reality, yeah. you're suddenly in touch with reality. You're, you've woken up in a way. It's a very strange phenomena. Yeah. Now, Don, I think there were three books I believe you read as a child that inspired you to make Unicorn. And that's Unicorn with a K, by the way. U-N-I-K-O-R-N. And these books taught a lesson, which Unicorn is going to teach a lesson as well. What were those books that inspired you to write a book like Unicorn that has a message to it? Yeah, well, there's these classic books and, you know, even classic kind of movies. When we were children, like the movies, the kids' movies that were live action were directed by like Zemeckis, Donner, and Spielberg. I mean, the best directors. And I feel like the animated films today for kids are great, but the live action movies still haven't returned to that glory. But the books, like, I mean, there was Black Beauty, there was Charlotte's Webb. Watership Down. I mean, they each had their own special little message. Black Beauty sort of created this whole thing about preventing cruelty to animals by putting people in the shoes of the animal. And Charlotte's Web obviously celebrated the specialness of every creature, whether it's a pig or a spider, things that we normally look down on. And, you know, in Watership Down, which was all about the specialness of home, those are all sort of watershed books for me as a kid. And we wanted to create something that had that sort of sense of specialness. You know, we hope that we can come close. And please give our listeners just a snapshot of what Unicorn is about, the basic thesis of it and who the players are. The basic story, it's about a little girl named Maeve who inherits an old horse from this woman who has a farm down the road and the horse has a fly bun on its head which is like a little hat that horses wear to keep the flies out of their eyes and ears and when she takes the fly bonnet off she finds a bump on the center of the horse's forehead that looks like a horn was removed so she thinks the horse is a unicorn with a k which a unicorn with a k is different from a unicorn with a c a unicorn with a k is a unicorn that's had its horn removed to keep it safe from people that would harm it much like they take the horn off a rhino to keep it safe from poachers and so the story is all about her sort of belief in magic and the discovery of a real unicorn or is this just some kind of anomaly. Character-wise, the main characters are her and then the horse, of course, his name is Percy or Percival. And then her father, Jake, you know, he's an auto mechanic. He's mourning the loss of his wife or the main character's mother who was named Kara and she was actually a veterinarian. And what the little girl discovers is that her mom wasn't just a veterinarian. She was what they call a keeper, which is someone who actually is charged with protecting caring for and keeping safe mythical creatures that really exist. And this is all sort of set in the world of The Source. Josh and I have a comic we did for Scout Comics that is called The Source. It's actually illustrated by another great Brazilian artist, Leno Carvalho. That's been selling out, you know, issue one's on the third printing, issue two's on the second printing. And But the basic storyline there is that magic is real. It's just been outlawed. It's illegal. It's sort of using magic as sort of punishable by death. So the Salem witch trials were real. They were really killing witches for using magic. And it kind of deals with real history and folklore, but it's set in the present day. But it is kind of for mature readers, not teen plus at least. So part of this was expanding that universe in a way that we could actually share with our kids, which is was kind of one of the other raison d'etre, so to speak, of Unicorn. And Josh, who else is on Team Unicorn? In other words, the letter or the colorist and the regular cover artist. DC Hopkins lettering. We have, <laughs> obviously, a phenomenal Raphael, who's on the call with us right now. Nicholas Eli, who has done um, a handful of cover uh, illustrations for us. Have I forgotten anyone, Don? We forgot Dijo Lima is our oh, colorist. right. Our, colorist. our Ringo-nominated colorist. And it's Nicholas Ely. Nicholas actually is uh, a designer based in Australia, and he did the cover for The Rift. He did the cover for the source, he did this beautiful cover for Unicorn. Between him and Raphael, man, I just feel so blessed to have these two amazing artists. One is sort of a designer, and he laid out our whole Kickstarter page and everything. And then you have Raphael, who's just doing this beautiful art. I mean, the pages Raphael has been doing are just so phenomenal. And Dijo, the colorist, is just 
amazing as well. I mean, just the combination of the team we have is really sort of humbling to Josh and I. They're, they're so amazing. They're such great artists, and we're so blessed to be working with them. I'm trying to lock Raphael down for the next year so he doesn't leave me. <laughs> <laughs> well, Raphael, you're dedicated to this book right now. I mean, you've already done like, what, 25 pages? I don't know, because we, we have been doing these, uh, not a, like a regular script. We're doing like chunks of the script. So we do like six pages and do three pages. Then we do 11 pages and then we do more pages. But it's about around 20, 20 something pages so far. By the way, thank you, John and Josh, because you guys make it easy for me to draw. I said this before, working not only with Don, but with uh, James as well. When we were working on the mall, these guys craft a story that makes me really give my all and my best work. And Don and Josh are doing the same with this. And it's like a breath of fresh air, to, so to speak, because... I used to be one of those guys who wanted so bad to work on superhero comics and stuff like that. And these stories are so much better to work on, man. These pages we've done for Unicorn and I don't know, it feels like it's a story that matters. It's not just like a story for kids, I think it's for everybody. Yeah, it has a message. It's more than just entertainment. There's something beneath that, something you're going to remember. Something, again, like you said, for all ages. So it'll reach even kids that have trouble dealing with these situations on a different level. And speaking of creators on the book, there's a couple of others that are contributing to the book, Ben Bishop and Pop Man. What are they each doing for this Kickstarter? Ben is someone that I met. At, you know, We've been talking for probably over a year now. I sort of fell in love with this book, The Aggregate. I was a big fan of the Choose Your Own Adventure books as a child. And then when I came across this comic, I just thought it was really cool. And Ben is also done a couple kickstarters it was new for me and josh and he's been you know very helpful as far as providing advice and insight and i said he was willing to draw a nice piece of original art for us and obviously he's a artist of teenage mutant ninja turtles and other stuff beyond his own stuff he does the aggregate he just did the aggregate two on kickstarter which did really well and i also ordered because i'm excited to read it pop mon is uh someone i was introduced to by todd smith who's our editor i forgot to mention todd smith who's been helping us sort of do a lot of stuff behind the scenes and it's been a great help to i'm from in virginia a town called reston right outside of washington dc and the rival high school pop mon was went to school there oddly there's two comic book artists that are great carl moline and pop mon who both went to this other high school and I was introduced to Pop and we've just been wanting to work together for a while. We're going to probably do a book together, but he um, was also willing to do a pinup and he did a great sort of unicorn pinup for us as well and is doing an original sketch for the Kickstarter also. But yeah, they're just great artists that I'm lucky enough to have met recently that we're willing to contribute. Raphael, wonderful art. I saw some of the preview art on the Kickstarter page and I encourage people to not only support it, but check it out. Take a look at it and watch the video. And Raphael, for this particular book, how are you putting emotional content into the art? I'm kind of big on working and training, practicing drawing faces and facial expressions. And I think the eyes are the most important part of the drawing when you're trying to convey some emotions. And like I said, when these guys write it, you have the responsibility to materialize to people that emotional content. Just by reading the script, it puts me in the mood. And I do like these faces on the mirror just to get my references for the faces. And I also try to like use the, the layouts of the page to take the eyes of the reader across the story and make sure that every time he looks at a panel, that panel shows something important and that brings some sort of energy to the story. 
Well, the eyes are the window to the soul, so it's very important right. for paying, paying emotion. And Raphael, do you think your approach for Unicorn is different than it is for the mall? If so, how is it different? The mall, we use a lot of urban uh, references for the, for the backgrounds, and it's a different vibe. I mean, the mall, it's a great story, but it's a different story. Uh, with Unicorn, we're getting this vibe of a countryside uh, background where you have these farms and you have these old trucks. I'm from the countryside, so things that I saw growing up, it's easier to draw from that memory, I think. We're doing these pages on paper, kind of limiting the use of the digital tools into production, so it gives off this feeling, this more tactile feeling to the lines. That's like the two most important differences in approach from the mall to this one. Okay. And Don and Joshua, what are some of the rewards for this particular Kickstarter for the backers? I mean, we have the basics, which is sort of your book and getting your name in the back of the graphic novels of the first printing as a backer. And then also we have a uh, limited sort of Kickstarter only unicorn number one issue, which is sort of like the comic series behind the graphic novel, sort of a limited edition cover, um, very small Kickstarter only printing. And then we actually, because it ties in with the source universe, we're doing a limited edition source number one unicorn variant cover, which is going to be the number one of the source, but very, very limited quantity. And uh, we also have like a fun, like a unicorn kind of mega gift box, which is kind of like some of the stuff you're going to know. Some of it's going to be blind box stuff, but basically you'll have like a stuffed animal, a pin, a t-shirt, luggage tag, unicorn mug, unicorn patch, and a bunch of other stuff. And all of it either designed by some of the artists we have or Raphael doing stuff or, or Nicholas, our designer laying stuff out. So a lot of cool stuff in there. And then we have original art. We have an original sketch by Pop Mom, which already sold out. Raphael, original sketch already sold out. But we have Ben Bishop, who does the aggregate, who we mentioned earlier, has an original sketch. You know, there's also some stuff in there. Like you can be a character in the book. You can get your kid or your pet in the book as well. And you can get your name. You can have some dialogue as well. Um, there's actually, as Raphael mentioned, he's doing a lot of the pages on paper. And so there's actually a tier where you can get some original art from the book. Yeah, and there's also um, lunch with Josh and I, if anyone wants to do that, which uh, we've actually, we two people have done it, so we're, we're excited about that, but basically they're going to have lunch. It's probably, I'm sure it's relatives, it's mom or dad or someone, but but the, uh, but um, but it's good to, good to know. And then, you know, look, I mean, I'm in the film business, so, you know, one of the things we offer that maybe is a little unusual is a walk-on part in a Hollywood production, which is basically kind of like oh. a featured extra role on some movie of either myself or TV show that I'm doing or my friends are doing, and so that's something that's on there that's maybe a little different. And then we have something... The highest tier is our executive producer tier, which is something where, you know, most of the stuff that Josh and I do, uh, while it's not necessary, we didn't do this to become a movie, but if it does become a movie, it's something where this person would be an executive producer, not just on the book, but on the movie itself, which could be a fun opportunity for someone who, you know, wants their name out there. And we have some other like stretch goals in mind. We have some things that are some fun, kind of like what we call pocket rewards we're going to drop soon. And we also have add-ons if people want certain things to go with their book, like patches, pins, stuff like that. We have all that stuff coming as well. So there's something for every level. For anybody that wants to be a part of it, you can go as low as $5 or you can go all the way to the top. And if you do the lunch, don't get the soup. This is the meal. So <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> get, you get a carrot. The lunch is on there. It's a carrot. That's yeah, all you see, get. Is a see. Now, final question for each one of you. Unicorn is about hope and magic within us. How do you recognize magic in your life? And how does it manifest itself both inside of you 
and in the outside world, in your opinion? So, Don, you first. It's interesting. I've had sort of a very personal experience with this. It was kind of like the origin of Source and all of it, man. And that's, um, I had a an experience sort of like, a, you know, my, I was writing and drinking like five Red Bulls a day. And, and uh, my heart went into what they call atrial fibrillation, which is when your heart goes like 220 beats a minute. And they actually had to shock me back into rhythm. They had to put me on the table and blast my heart with uh, all this electricity. It was kind of a near-death experience in a weird way. But after that, I was in a lot of like discomfort and anxiety and stuff like that. And I went to get a couple massages and stuff like that to try to get help and just doing yoga. And then I went to this place and they said, well, the massage person's not here, but you can get Reiki. And I was like, well, what's Reiki? And they're like, it's acupuncture without the needles. And I was like, I heard acupuncture is cool. At that point, I would have done anything if they said, drink this poison and it would help you. But I went in to get Reiki and I just sat on the table, kept my clothes on. This woman hovered her hands over my body for an hour. And I got more relief from that than anything else I had done. And like, I'm the kind of person, my, one of my ex-girlfriends would be like, I, your aura is this. And I'd be like, that's nonsense. Be quiet. And, uh, but after this experience, I like literally was like, am I crazy? My wife was six months pregnant with my first child, a daughter. And I said, you have to go to this thing tomorrow. I know you're six months pregnant, but you got to go tomorrow to this woman and just let me know if I'm crazy or not. And uh, she went because she felt like she was on Mars. And it just just opened my eyes, you know, to the fact that there's things out there we can't explain. And I also read a book called The Molecules of Emotion by a woman named Candace Purd, who was one of the people who was behind sort of the discovery of the ganglia that released the different chemicals that go into your brain, like dopamine and stuff like that. And her group got a Nobel Prize for it. She was doing all this experimentation on these ganglia. And while she was doing it, this Indian guy came into her office and he had a 2,000 or 3,000 year old Sanskrit scroll and he laid it out next to her sort of scientific discovery of this new thing for us called the ganglia. And the chakras lined up perfectly with the ganglia on the spine. And it was one of those things where I was like, whoa, man. So there's things that we knew just from our own awareness of the world around us that we forgot. You know, and then science, we're rediscovering them through science. But it's like it was already there. The knowledge was already there and we've forgotten it. And that was a big part of my awareness and opening me up to sort of the fact that there is magic in the world. Very good. Joshua, how about you? As a human and as a parent, just steadily becoming aware of like how cynical <laughs> our our world is and how much of that cynicism can and often is absorbed by kids. And so I think just having conversations with my own children about things like, hey, you know, the tooth fairy is going to come or hey, the Santa Claus might come down the chimney and just add, ah, there's no such thing as a tooth. And, you know, reflecting on my own childhood and feeling like there was less of that cynicism inundating the creation of this book and some of its themes is just really a love letter to the little kids who believe in the impossible and who cherish the impossible, you know, even in the face of naysayers and opposition. You know, our protagonist, May, is really just like a headstrong believer. She's the kind of kid I'd want to know and be friends with. And Raphael, how do you recognize the magic inside you and in the outside world? I feel like I'm way too dumb to answer this in a like <laughs> way. But I don't know, man. Like Don said, there's a lot of stuff in this world that we have to be humble enough to accept we don't understand. Like I said, I'm too dumb to understand. So I try to focus on how can I improve my environment and the people around me? How can I make them feel better? And the magic in it for me is how it comes back. Like you throw good stuff out there good stuff comes back to you and it actually surprises me a lot more than I thought it would when 
you least expect something good comes around because of something good you did way back there, you know. So that kind of magic is what has been working for me so far, if that makes any sense. It does. That's really beautiful. Basically, it's like karma. It just simply means action is what karma means. It's not like, oh, you know, things come back and get you. No, it could be any kind of action. Sometimes, and this is hard for me to do, but sometimes I say, look, to myself, just be happy today. Don't worry about anything else. And if you're happy and in a good mood, you're going to find that other people are going to be happy and in a good mood back. If yeah. you're grumpy, you're going to make them grumpy, and your day's not going to go too well. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. But you all made a lot of good points. Keep an open mind because a lot of things at some point in history, as a culture, as a people, we knew some of these things. And now we're finding them scientifically, but we already had an innate knowledge of some of these things like chakras. Because we've been around for thousands of years, and sometimes we lose that connection with ourselves and nature and the environment with all the technology, <laughs> which is great because we can have this conversation, but we also tend to lose touch. And all the noise drowns out the things around us. And then we kind of walk around in that hazy state like I talked about until you lose somebody close to you and you don't realize until they're gone. Appreciate every moment that you have. And this is not a dress rehearsal, folks. It's the one shot yeah. you got. <laughs> so true, man. No, it's so true. And that's one of the things that the losses really bring home is that you only get one dance, man. Especially enjoy your family, enjoy the people you love and you know, try to do what you love, which is why Josh and I are doing comic books, man. And doing great ones. And I really appreciate you coming on the show and talking about Unicorn. I love books that have a very important theme in them, either something that goes back and looks at history or something that speaks very deeply about human nature and the human condition. So Unicorn, it's already started. We have, at the time of this conversation, 26 days to go. So don't delay. Get on board at any level. Take part. You'll be glad that you did. And this thing came out of the gate like a shot. I mean, it did really well just from the very beginning. So I have a good feeling about this. You know, I, I feel the vibes. This is going to be a, a winner. So please check out Unicorn. John, Joshua, and Raphael, thank you so much for being on Creator Corner. Thank you so much for having us, man. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks, man. It's great to be back. And next week on Creator Talks, I have a guest returning, Stephanie Cannon. You've seen her work in Alterna Comics. She will be joined by Matt Knowles, and they have a Kickstarter running right now, Tales of Nocturnia, and that ties into their series, Heirs of Isildur, an 11-issue series now up to issue number 10. We're going to talk about the Kickstarter and the series, Heirs of Isildur. And it is a steampunk time travel type story, but not time travel like you would think. So please join me next week when I'm joined by Stephanie and Matt. And Matt tackles the fun questions to ask all my guests in the Kicking Back with the Creator segment. And Stephanie answers the questions that I didn't get to with her during her last visit on the show. And now with the usual business, you can find me on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Creator Talks Pod. That's at Creator Talks Pod. On Saturdays, I share my Silver Age comics from my collection and Sundays, my Bronze Age comics from my collection. Lots more stuff coming your way, plus things I am finding in my storage crawl space that go way, way back. Not necessarily comic related, but uh, I found some comics that came along with toys that go back to the 70s. And I'll be sharing some other pop culture items. Some of these I haven't seen in decades. And I was like, oh, yeah, I remember I had that. So, well, I'll be sharing those with you through social media. If you want to reach me, contact me through email, contact.creatortalks.com. That's contact.creatortalks.com. The show is available through iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Amazon Alexa-enabled devices, 
YouTube, and Spotify. It's out every Thursday and it is free. Please, if you have an opportunity, rate and review the show on iTunes and any other shows that you like. Take the time. We really appreciate it. It helps us all be found on iTunes amongst all the other podcasts that are out there. So when someone's looking at another interview or comic podcast, they may see you may also like and your rating review helps my show and other shows that you like appear along with the podcast that the person is listening to. I have some great interviews coming up. I can't wait to share with you in the subject matter of the comics or some of my favorites, some real classics coming up and folks I've wanted to have on the show for a while. So I hope you enjoy all your books and comics this week. Be good to one another. I'm Christopher Calloway for Creator Talks. Until next time. <laughs>